What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch. In fact, this whole episode is going to be recorded live. Well, not live. It's going to be pre-recorded at the Mystery Ranch location there in Bozeman, Montana. I had a hell of a time up there and we got to talk about a lot of stuff. So if you guys don't know what Mystery Ranch is and you haven't been rocking one of those uh, Mystery Ranch Fireline packs, well, you're probably doing it wrong and your back probably hurts. They make arguably the most comfortable and best built Fireline packs out there. But in addition to that, they build a bunch of other load bearing essentials. So if you're looking to peel a trophy elk off the side of the hill, they got a solution for you. Hell, if you even want a, uh, a briefcase to make a crew boss kit or a bag to throw all of your civvy clothes in and stuff under the seat of your engine or your uh, in the bin of your buggy. Well, they make a solution for you as well. But in addition to this, we are going to be unveiling the Backbone series and the 1039 scholarship series here pretty damn soon. So look for uh, more of that here coming up soon. So if you guys want to find out more, go over to www.mysteryranch.com. And uh, hey, Dana, Luke, thanks for having me up there. Definitely appreciate it. The Anger Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by Manscaped. Oh yeah, your balls will thank you. So 2020 has been this year of things are wildly out of our control, but there's one thing that we can control, and that is the length of our unruly bushes. And Manscaped is here to remind you just that. I'm a big fan of the Lawnmower 3.0. I used to have the 2.0, but now this Lawnmower 3.0 is new and improved. Yeah, it's got a it's waterproof one and two. It has a sweet LED light built right into it, and it includes that skin safe technology, which helps reduce the chance of those manscaping mishaps, which is pretty damn cool. But ladies, this is also kind of geared to you. I mean, it is a men's grooming product, but if you have a significant other or uh, you happen to want to get a gag gift for somebody that you care about, that's actually useful a gift that's useful and kind of funny. Well, Look no further than Manscaped. You can get the perfect package. It's pretty awesome. It comes with the lawnmower 3.0. It comes with a sweet pair of anti-chafing boxers, which are pretty, pretty damn cool. Uh, it comes with the crop reserver and the crop reviver ball toning spray and anti-chafing ball deodorant. It is pretty damn cool. So go over to www.manscaped.com and check this out. Listeners of this show can get an exclusive discount. Enter the code anchor point at checkout for 20% off and free shipping site-wide over at manscaped.com. Let me tell you that again. Your balls will thank you. Go check them out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that is none other than Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, which is pretty damn cool. But aside from kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, they make a ton of other essentials. So if you want to get your morning started right, well, you can get an AeroPress or a pour-over system or some thermoses or some camp cups. They got all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right. In addition to that, they have a ton of apparel. They have a huge selection of Wildland Firefighter-themed apparel right for your picking. So if you guys want to go find out more, go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check it out. Also, the Anchor, or, sorry, Hotshot Brewery supports the Anchor Point podcast by slinging our merch. So if you guys want to get your hands on one of those Band of Brothers tees or the Wildland Misfits, the Fire Fiend Club t-shirt or some stickers, well, go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check it out. 
The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by the ass movement. What does that stand for? Well, it stands for the anti-surface shitting movement. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been on our public lands and I've recognized a huge tissue issue. I don't know about you, but I've come across a, even on the fire line for that matter, a uh, pile of human excrement gift wrapped in some toilet paper and it's disgusting and that shit needs to stop. Can we all agree on that? Good. I'm glad we can agree, but you can help spread this message by going over to www.thefirewild.com and picking up some ass movement merch. They got stickers. They got posters. They even have this super awesome turd trowel, as I like to call it. That's not the official name of it, but it's like a little trowel to do your business and dig a hole and bury it with pretty damn cool. It's uh, made out of titanium and it's super lightweight. So get yours today. That's a new improved turd trowel. Bring it with you. Tell your friends. Go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement for more info. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is brought to you by the Smoky Generation. Oh, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's also known as the American Wildfire Experience. And if you guys don't know what it is, well, you're missing out. It is a global, a now global collection of stories about wildland firefighting dating all the way back to the 1940s. It's a collection of over 100 of them, and it's growing every dang week. It's pretty sweet. Bethany's got a kick-ass organization over there, and she's giving back to the community. Oh, yeah. So if you guys happen to be a writer, a photographer, a cinematographer, a blogger, anybody who's telling the story about wildland fire in general across the world, well, you might have an opportunity to win one of these limited $500 grants for those folks in the field. It's pretty damn cool. But if you guys want to find out more, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. And uh, yeah, who would have thought that you would have red flag warnings and a winter storm warning combined into the same operational period uh, over there in Colorado? Pretty crazy. 2020 apparently is just uh, throwing us a lot of hooks and fire season won't end. So yeah, be safe out there. Anyways, today on the show, I've got a gentleman by the name of Lucas Mayfield. He's one of my good friends, one of my personal buddies, and uh, he is also the program fire program manager over at Mystery Ranch. Today, we're going to talk about why he got out of fire, uh, some of the things that Mystery Ranch does, and some of the extracurricular activities like the grassroots movement that he has pretty much spearheaded. It's pretty damn cool. And uh, yeah, this is uh, part one of two. So look for the other episode here coming out shortly. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Lucas Mayfield. Welcome to the Anchor Point. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. This is one of many 
happening in good old Bozeman, Montana, Mystery Ranch. Today on the show, I've got Mr. Lucas Mayfield. What is up, dude? Nothing. Happy to be here and uh, glad you could make it up and I'm looking forward to it. Hell yeah, man. No, this has been an awesome experience. Like we're going through the grand tour of everything. We're getting to go hang out in downtown Bozeman, which is a cool ass town. Yeah, it's, uh, this is the last thing I ever would have thought that I would be doing with my life or, uh, that I would have ever left federal land management agency, forestry technician, fire suppression work. I was halfway through, uh, my career as a perm and I took the job because I believe in the company and, uh, yeah, provided me an out. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's, it's a hell of a story too. I mean, you've been in fire for damn near forever. And then you went to mystery ranch. So you're still kind of loose. You are still in fire cause you get the opportunity to go out and do like hood rat shit with your friends as well. True. I spent, um, so as a forest service employee, I started working for the forest service in 2001 as a seasonal, um, and spent eight years as a seasonal, uh, got a permanent appointment in 2009 and from 2009 to 2019, uh, spent 10 years as a perm from a forestry technician. Uh, got my appointment as a senior firefighter on a hotshot crew. Worked up the chain um, from senior to squatty to assistant soup and uh, on a hotshot crew and was able to spend time detailed as a soup. And yeah, ended up choosing to leave and resign. Yeah. And there's a story behind that as well that we can get into uh, a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a story working from going from an assistant soup on a hotshot crew to mystery ranch and we should fuck it. Let's just get into it, man. So what, what led you to that? A uh, complete and utter networking and accidents. Um, and I thought you were going a different direction right there. <laughs> no, uh, in March of 2018, I went to PFTC there and based out of Tallahassee, Florida and, um, team three, I hope I didn't screw that up, but I had an amazing group of folks that I was working with. And one of them, a pretty influential dude to me and my career. Um, I won't say his name, but, uh, he knows who he is. And we were just talking a lot. He was involved. He'd been operational on hotshot crews, um, went on to a long career as a smoke jumper, went on from there to get a graduate degree from an Ivy League school, um, worked for a variety of outside of the box organizations that no one hears about or knows about. And he called me in late September of that year, I was detailed as a superintendent last role of the year, or he sent a text to the group because we're still in contact with this burn group. And he's like, Hey, I just talked to a recruiter. Mystery ranch is looking for a fire program manager. I have no intention of taking it. Does anybody want this job or are you interested? And I responded, yeah, I am. And he sent my information on and it kind of grew from uh, introductory phone conversation of I've got a good job. I'm probably not interested, but I'd like to hear what you have to say. Huh. 
So it's just kind of almost like uh, serendipitous, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. He's got lucky. I complete and utter luck. Huh. No shit. Yep. And here you are. Yeah. So as far as like getting out of the whole fire realm, are you, I mean, what is that done as far as like missing it or do you miss it at all? Do you, are you happier? Is it like a, just a complete change of pace? I mean, I am happier outside of fire it's from, I got on a hotshot crew in 2007. Like I said, that's all I ever wanted to do is be a grunt. Well, being a grunt gets boring. You want to move up the chain. So I moved up the chain and that worked in my twenties. As I got older, got engaged, had a child, had a mortgage, had real life responsibilities, the family and financial stress for me, this is just me, became a lot and put, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, whatever you want to call it, specifically before fire seasons, after fire seasons. And when I was home for R&R, so probably as soon as 2016, I knew I needed an out. Um, I never wanted to go a conventional route and be an AFMO or an FMO. Um, You want to just stay operational? Or non-operational. I wanted to do something that would allow me to advocate for a better working environment and set people up for long-term success and resiliency within the agency, whether that was the office of learning, um, national wildfire coordinating group. I didn't know, but I'd met someone that was in the office of learning. I'd been to meetings in regards to comprehensive well-being, Um, and that's the route that I wanted to take. And in 2018, I wanted to be a soup. I thought I could be within a year or so, but I also knew I had max three years to accomplish that and get out before it was going to have a very severe, there would be very severe consequences, honestly, um, either on my family and my marriage or myself. Yeah. So mystery ranch coming around when it did, was that out and an opportunity that doesn't exist anywhere else. Like, yeah, there's no one else in the game that really does what mystery ranch does. No. And they don't, I don't know what the other companies are doing, but I know that I've worn the packs for 10 years. I believe in the product, the packs, the company. And I consciously thought that leaving the agency would give me a larger opportunity and platform to fight for the things that were screwing me up. Well, yeah, that's one of the things. I mean, you're even doing that right now, especially with like the grassroots effort. I know you're, you're very connected in that. Obviously you're doing a lot of the heavy lifting, especially with that policy proposal. And these things that you're throwing down on the table there for implementing real change, those are all firsthand experiences and real life things that you've had to struggle with and overcome with during your fire career. Yeah. And I'll, you know, to be quite frank and upfront and honest with folks, like my ability to transition in and out of fire season was, um, diminishing by the season. Um, just kind of burning out. 
Well, and, and to reintegrate into normal society, like I would much rather reintegrate into a bottle of whiskey than my neighbors. And essentially, if you weren't my wife, my daughter, or someone else in Nomex, like I didn't know how to talk to you and didn't want to. And there was some, what I would say, non-clinically diagnosed, like depression and thought, you know, twice a year thoughts of like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe my family would be better off with a life insurance check versus me being a hotshot or me being a dad or me being a husband. So I needed to get out and everything on that policy proposal and what we're trying to move forward or advocate for are the things that I know would have kept me in that position. It would have kept you fighting in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, yeah, man. I mean, there's a lot of issues. It's not a perfect system, but it's one of those things like over the course of a career, especially the length of a career that you had, the shit needs to change, man. It's just, we're just beating our heads against the walls and it has an obvious detriment. And this, those sentiments are reflected across a, a large variety of people, a large span of people. And it needs to change, man. Yeah. And, and I will be, I'll, you know, the forest service shaped me as a young human, like it, you know, we've talked about it. My first fire season, I showed up as a 258 pound pile of shit. (laughs) And, but people took the time, like I had heart, I had work ethic and I had desire and I knew what I wanted to be, but I had no idea how to get there. Yeah. I wanted to be a hotshot, but I didn't know you needed to spend your winter preparing for it and that PT was a thing and that exercise was a thing. And the operational leadership and the personnel leadership and the people that are within the agency care. And there are people that we don't hear about that are working to change things. But at some point in time, I tried for 10 years to change things internally and we need help. And it's not going to happen internally. We need legislative assistance and we need public support behind making true and lasting policy change. I a hundred percent agree with you on that one, man. That's, that's the crazy thing though. It's like, I, I kind of realized this when I got out of fire too, and I'm pretty sure you're in the same boat, but you kind of realize that you can, I'm not advocating for anybody to quit here with a statement or anything like that, but you can do a lot more outside of the service than you can within it with certain things. Yeah. I mean, you're not set up. There's so much gray area and you're going to get a different answer depending on who you talk to. But the fear of retribution and reprisal for advocating for better working environment or for anything for that matter is real. Oh, yeah. And if somebody can't speak, we're not going to be able to speak for everyone or advocate for everyone. And people are going to disagree. But I firmly and wholeheartedly with every part of who I am believe that this is what the majority is asking for and wants, which is 
everything that we're listing. And I know we're probably missing pieces, parts, some of the finer points, but that's in that policy proposal addressing pay, compensation, benefits, um, work to rest ratio, peer support, OWCP, comprehensive well-being. And there's organizations that are doing it and have learned the hard way. If you look at what uh, the municipal departments in various places have um, in place between peer support and work to rest guidelines and time in, time off, like there's people doing it. Yeah, there's definitely people doing it. But that's another thing, too, is we don't really advertise the stuff that we do have, like at least in my experience of fighting fire for, you know, 11 seasons, we have these EAP programs, but no one knows jack shit about them. And even then, if you were to use them, some of these resources, it's, it's not catered to us. It's catered to like the general public, like your office HR worker or something like that. Well, I'd say that it is a mechanism that crosses a T and dots an I. Um, and it's not something I'm not saying it can't be helpful, but it's not often helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's a, in my opinion, it's a CYA. It could be looked at that, that in that regard, I think, um, I do know from the, a couple of surveys that we put out that, uh, some people have had like a real mixed bag of reviews as far as like, uh, EAP goes like some people have utilized it. Some people, uh, some stations do advertise it, but for the most part it's lacking. Yeah. And like I said, it, it's not set up and I, we're not set up. I mean, when has mental health been brought into the equation or the discussion in wildland fire? I mean, we can't even get the title, right? We don't talk about mental health within agency and it's tough to do outside agency. It's tough for me to be on here and be like, yeah, there's times I wasn't hacking it, you know, depressed, thought it would be better if I wasn't around. I mean, it's hard for me to say the S word or that those ideations were part of who I was. And the EAP is not meant for that. They're not trauma informed counselors. They're not, you know, whatever. I'm not educated enough or smart enough to be able to tell you the rhyme and reason and PTSD and long-term exposure. And, but it's there, man. And it's, it has to be addressed. It has to be talked about. People need to know that they're okay. It's okay. Kind of break that stigma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too. It's like, we're just a very hard headed culture. So I think breaking that stigma is going to be one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face. I mean, it's slowly getting better. I mean, you've had obviously a longer fire fire career than I did. You probably saw the old school mentality. You saw that transition into this newer school. I was on the cusp of that. So it's getting better, but it's not where it needs to be. No. And I mean, if we're continually striving to be the best, it's never going to be. But in my opinion, to date, we're not even taking the internal steps to address it. And I say that with limited knowledge. As I said before, I know that there are individuals internal that are working on it and they that do care. But I think from the outside they need assistance to get some actual push momentum and meet behind these movements. 
Yeah, man. It's, that's the thing is like actually gaining and fostering that support and garnering traction to get this whole thing like lifted off the ground. I think that's going to be, you know, it's going to be another challenge of its own. And that policy proposal that, you know, that our group, the grassroots group has presented, it's not a one-stop shop cure-all by any means. It's a general outline of what we need to see to have successful firefighters and a resilient workforce. There's a lot more to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the most frequently asked question is in regards to how are you going to fund it? And I, I don't know. I'm not in that position to tell you, but I do know that we've been fortunate and fortunate enough to have folks to at least be able to begin to explain that, break down the policy proposal into specific sections with fiscal responsibility allocations and the methods behind it. So yeah, I mean, we're that policy proposal as is, I would say is at a 30,000 foot level and we're working on trying to get it down to 15,000 feet with form and function behind it of what, why, how, and who is going to, you know, make this happen. Yeah. And that's the thing is it's the who, the who and how they're going to be the hard parts too, because we need experts out there that can crunch the numbers and find appropriations from, you know, Congress or whoever, whatever budget we got to find all this stuff. We got to make it happen. But in reality, at the end of the day, that's the only way you're going to have men maintain a year round healthy workforce because the shit that we see sometimes out there, it's bad. You're like cruising through a friggin' subdivision and it's just been leveled by fire. I mean, you normalize it in the, in the moment, but what does that have long-term or far worse? You, you know, I had a discussion with some prevention and patrol guys, uh, one of which was on the Angeles and it's not uncommon for him to stumble across, you know, someone who may have been murdered or, someone who's crashed their vehicle, all this stuff, you know, and that's, it's becoming more, more and more frequent. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, I've been thinking about this lately in the last couple of weeks and I can't remember what spurred it, but every two weeks bringing a crew on or any critical I've been involved in or 130, 190, no matter what it is, like there's always a statement or a piece about how we're not structure firefighters. We're not, um, medical professionals. We don't provide emergency services. And that is just not true anymore. Hell no. Like I, in my last four years of being on a hotshot crew and probably, uh, before that, at least 80% had some sort of either small scale or extremely large scale wildland urban interface aspect to it. Yeah, we're not putting fires out, but you are putting plans together that save a subdivision or don't save a subdivision. I mean, the the complications that exist on the ground aren't recognized in reality. Yeah. Or in training, I should say, not reality. Reality is that those complications are there and we're still acting like that's not what we do. There's more to it than land management. Oh, that's the thing too. And that's like, 
that's a big argument too, because right now, especially with the polarization of our public, um, it, this is one of those issues, one of those topics that's going to inevitably cross political boundaries from left to right. It doesn't matter because it affects everybody. But when you start assigning numbers to it, we're spending, you know, three, four times as much of our entire fire budget on suppression that was originally allocated. You know, a lot of those funds were originally allocated for forestry management. So you want to talk about, if you want to blame it on climate change, sure, go ahead. If you want to blame it on piss poor forest management and land management, sure, whatever. But the truth of the matter at the end of the day is it's a combination of that and a lot more somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think historically management was the focus. Suppression was the side hustle to where that's been flipped and suppression is the focus and management is a hobby. It's not even a side hustle. And the, again, my opinion, but the current answer as I understood them upon resignation and as I currently understand them in the seat that I'm in is that the, the fix is to keep that same population that's probably pushing or has pushed 800 to a thousand hours of overtime in the last five months. Well, now let's just keep them longer so they can also meet the management objectives. But we haven't thought about the fact that that population is burnt out. They haven't seen their family. They haven't seen their friends. They've skipped weddings, birthdays, births, um, funerals, you name it. And they've sacrificed everything. And now you want them to come back and burn piles, prep burn units, thin and slash units, whatever the case may be, like that doesn't work anymore. You've already squeezed as much blood from that stone that there is. And that's another thing that kind of pisses me off about uh, the way we kind of run business, how we do business. Um, it's, it's like we have, it's, it's just like with the seasonal extension that was put out this year because we're having all of a sudden pretty much a fucking gnarly fire season just exploded. Like the ass end of July, everything just turned into a firestorm pretty much. It was an instant PL5. And now people are like, oh, it's real now. It's on our front doorstep. Now we're asking people to extend without continuation of benefits during the winter. They're already making poverty wages. I mean, a GS4 is on what, 1495 an hour for uh, Oconus. So continental, but if you don't have a COLA, a cost of living adjustment, mm-hmm. now you're asking those guys to work essentially what is an 18 and eight, but you're not providing benefits. Sounds a lot like a perm to me with none of the perks. Yeah, I can't disagree. I mean, I don't, remember when it happened. I mean, even the fact that that was a big step for seasonals to be able to access health insurance period. Yeah. And then you've got a month cause you pick it up a life changing event when seasonals come on, it's part of critical in most places. Now here's your health benefits. This is how it works. This is the cost. Here's the life changing event sheet you do want this. It's going to last for a month after the season. So that's when you need to schedule 
your eye appointment, your dental appointment, and whatever else you may need from the doctors. But, and that I believe 72% of that is covered by um, your agency. 28% of that's out of pocket. They're good benefits. Yeah, I will argue that. Yeah, the fact that you can't access that for the rest of the year, is that right? No, it's not. Well, it it's a little disingenuous to say that that's unavailable, completely unavailable. But we have this thing called COBRA. Whenever you're separated from your job, you have the option. It's continuation of benefits, right? COBRA or whatever that acronym stands for. But you're expecting someone who's making $14.95 an hour to pay $800 a month for health insurance? Are you, are you fucking high? <clears throat> well, and based off of the savings that they've accrued, like you said, when I was in my twenties, yeah, that's the most money I'd ever seen in my life, but yeah. I didn't have a time to spend it for the six months previous. Um, and now, yeah, like you said, there isn't a person you go on unemployment for folks that may know or don't know the the object is to leave a fire season with as much money as humanly possible. So you can enjoy whatever it is that you want to enjoy, whether that's being a ski bum, traveling overseas, buying a new truck, car, Jeep, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And then start collecting that unemployment. And a lot of times unemployment pays more than what your base check did. I know it did for me. It definitely did for me, which is crazy to think about, man. If you're working a base eight paycheck, you're not making shit, man. It sucks. You can't put food on your table. You have to find a side hustle. And that's another thing that's kind of like putting us back as far as the seasonality of our jobs is good luck trying to find a part-time job or a full-time job for a period of six months. Good luck. No one's going to want to hire someone for six six months, you know? Yeah. And I mean, people make it work or they've got, you know, maybe, yes, you can make it work, but it's hard. Well, and you're burnt out. You just worked a year's worth of hours in six months. You need time off. You need a break. Maybe you go work at a ski area. Maybe you've got something on your own. Um, But that's when, well, not only do you rest and recuperate, but you have to start getting ready for that next fire season. Like when I interviewed for this job, one of the questions was, what's your hobbies? And I was like, I, I don't have any hobbies anymore. I, I've i got fire season and I've got getting ready for next fire season to make sure that I can still be in the front leading these kids that are, you know, 15 plus years younger than me um, up a hill, not look like a turd bag, still be able to lead by example and get them to the place they want to be and still be mentally cognizant enough to make the right decisions to put them in the best position to either succeed based off of objectives or leave in a relaxed manner because the plan isn't working. Yeah. No, it's a heavy burden to bear too, especially as an assistant soup on a hotshot crew, man. That's uh that's a lot of a lot of responsibility that you're not necessarily compensated for. Cause especially as an assistant, I mean, soup, I mean, I don't know how you guys ran it, but my experience with the hotshot crew is like, okay, you trade off roles, right? So this role, the soup is going to go do a division or task force or whatever, go get some ink in a task book. Right. And then the assistant would take the crew and then on the next fire be flip-flopped. Is that how you guys ran it? 
Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it was in 2016. I detailed as the assistant soup on the crew I was working for. And it was pretty similar to that. I mean, one, it was a two captain system. So you either run a one, two, two or a one, one, three, referring to one soup, two captains, two squaddies or one soup, an assistant soup and three squad bosses. Um, I was fortunate enough to work in both of those systems. They both have their merits. Ideally, if nobody's getting farmed out, you've got the soup that is the big picture. He's looking, you know, three, five, 10, 14 days ahead across geographical boundaries, across divisions. Um, how do we meet immediate objectives? And then let's go make our own objectives and move forward and get people to follow us is what I saw and admire. And then we'd have two captains. Um, one was operations, one was logistics. And then when the logistics was done, those operational captains could leapfrog a little bit. First captain figures out objective number one, gets people to work, meets that objective, while second captain is up in front, figuring out objective number two, crew gets there. He kind of takes over his point of contact while the next one starts figuring out Steps three, based off of the big picture that's coming back from the soup. Uh, one, one, three, I also like, you know, it puts more, um, I guess, honus on the squatties to start doing a lot of that. Yeah. Well, that's another thing, too, that you have to take on the burden of is like not only the operational aspect of it, but the interpersonal dynamics as well. I mean, we're human at the end of the day. And when you're ultimately responsible for, you know, 20 other people, that's a heavy burden, man. I mean, they only got their own issues and shit going on in their lives and some of it's not good. And it's pretty much since we don't have these programs available to where we can, you know, have a peer support system, we don't have that. So it's up to you. It's up to crew leadership to take on that role and responsibility of helping their subordinates out. Yes. And it's something that we're not prepared for. Um, and I say we're like, I'm still there. So my apologies. I know I'm out, <laughs> but we're not prepared for it. I mean, we try our best, do our best. You're obviously it's your family, right? Yeah. Your fire family. Yeah. Like I spent more days of my life with my fire family than I have with my own family over the last 18 years, 20 overall, like you're looking out for them because you love them like family. Um, but when it comes down to the form and function of getting people appropriate help, that can be more than difficult. And luckily there's nonprofits that can assist, but the fact that you're reaching out, I don't know, it's an oxymoron. Like, yeah. I've got to reach out to an outside the agency for outside the agency assistance on nonprofits that are supported by boots on the ground to get any true help, whether that's hospital based, uh, mental health based, dependency based, you name it. Yeah. And that's some of the things that you've had firsthand experience with. I mean, you've had to deal with, you know, folks that have struggled with addiction or, a death in the family or PTSD. And the fact that we have to actually rely on these nonprofit organizations to support us. If, if shit hits the fan, it's a joke, man. 
I, I, it, that's, that's the one thing. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't have changed anything in my life. I'd loved my career. I just had to get out of it for my own personal reasons. And I did. My time is of, of that is now done, but looking back in retrospect, what are we doing to ourselves? Well, I, I don't think anyone, this agency, this career wasn't built to be a career. It was, it was a side hustle. It was a seasonal job. Fire season didn't last six months. It lasted for a finite amount of time according to geographic location and was done. Well, now you've got, you know, it's referred to as a fire year. The amount of permanent employees and professional development and all these things have grown, but I don't think the overall infrastructure has grown with it. It's kind of stuck in that 1940s kind of era, it seems. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it's still in my opinion, based off of the fact that people are replaceable, it's not a professional career and that you can just go grab folks from the bar or a train car and have them work for a while. And if you lose them, that's all right. The next train load's coming. Yeah. Well, you had a good analogy for that about, you know, the logging camp or the mining camp that pays their employees at the bar on Friday night. It's almost, you know, servitude at that point because you're paying them. Where are they going to spend their money at? It's Friday. They have two days off. Well, they're going to spend it at the bar and now they have to go back to work in order to pay their bills. Or you've just spent six months saving as much as humanly possible. And this was never, you know, again, internally, the one thing that can be done is the onboarding process. And this wasn't said to me until I was part, a part of start of starting to say it to other people. The common practice is you make as much money as possible pre maybe 2015. I think people are getting smarter. You make as much money as possible and then you spend it. You have, you come back season two, you see rookie hotshots come back season two and a new rig with a $500 truck payment. They've been to, uh, what's the popular place that, well, you go overseas somewhere to be on a beach chase some temporary or permanent significant other you snowboard your face off and that's all i did i wanted to be a ski bum and a hot shot so i skied 100 plus days a year lived in a cheap cabin spent all of my money and came back needing that first fire check more than i needed anything else because unemployment was gone i was back to base checks and i was broke now there's at least modules um, overhead that are starting to talk to people about this is what's gonna this is what is going to trip you up. If you continue along this path and keep relying on overtime, which who knows if it's gonna be a good season, a yeah. bad season, a slow season. Well, that's just never guaranteed. It's up to Mother Nature at that point. Right. And you can't plan on 800 hours of overtime. And you can't live off of a base check. So getting those aspects into people's head of you need a nest egg. You need to come back because you want to, not because you're forced to and you need the cash. And it's a professional workforce at this point. I mean, if you look at 
a lot of crews, hotshot crew specific, I mean, eight to 10 of those folks, maybe 50% of the crew are now in some way, shape or form a permanent employee, whether that's a 13 and 13, an 18 and eight or a 26 and oh, like this is a profession. It's a career, whether you're getting paid or not, you're putting the time in during fire season and everybody knows it when you're in the news that you're putting the time in and no one sees the sacrifice that is put in during the off season to make sure that you're ready for duty come March, April, or May, whatever your report to date is to make sure that you can meet whatever recommendations may exist physically. I won't even talk about a pack test because we all know that, that uh, the validity. <laughs> it's a joke. But the it's tough, man. And PT ends up becoming the hobby. And then that evolution goes from, and I briefly mentioned this earlier, and for, for me, what started stressing me out was not just the responsibility of 20 other folks, but it's also responsible for my wife for my child. Um, I had a mortgage, I had car payments and everything, like I said, was based off of having to be gone and making, I mean, any more a thousand hours isn't hard to get, but at least 800. Yeah. Like I would have been financially in real trouble if I had a season that was less than 800 hours and I shouldn't, People shouldn't plan their lives on that, but I certainly fell into that trap. It's an easy trap to fall into though. That's the thing. Yeah. That's for damn sure. But at the end of the day though, I mean, I, I, especially with recent events and how the season has been, it really, really pisses me off that we are not considered professionals. We're not, we're technicians. We're forestry technicians. We don't have the title of firefighter unless a tragedy happens. Right. And I've, you know, I sent you that's in line with some of the letters that have came out resignation and otherwise. Uh, yeah. You're a firefighter on the news and you're a firefighter in death. If it's a line of duty death. Yeah. Um, that doesn't account for all the shit that happens off duty. No. I mean, you're certainly not in the high risk category for COVID coverage right now as a forestry technician. You need to prove that that was contracted um, at work and on the line uh, versus being in the high risk category. And even the line of duty stuff. I mean, I don't know that it's the time or place given current events to get into it, but that's a fight for families even after they've lost that person to get uh, first responder death benefits, et cetera. Um, and it's sad and it's not right. And I don't know. To me, it's not about being a firefighter or a forestry technician, but there has to be a title and a series that clearly delineates and defines the people that are in Nomex right now as first responders. And that then has to correlate to proper pay, benefits, OWCP coverage, comprehensive well being. And in my opinion, until something changes um, management wise, a separation of fire and fuels. 
So that's an interesting topic, though. I mean, you kind of pitched around the idea in the uh, grassroots firefighter group of like a national wildland firefighting service, which has been attempted in the past. But you have a new take on it, which is pretty damn cool. In regards to title and series or the separation viability, the separation viability. Yeah. And I guess what what spurred this is when, um, yeah, number one. So firefighter versus forestry technician, the loudest argument is if you're a firefighter, that's inherently, um, hazardous in nature. So you lose the ability to collect hazard pay in the response from OPM to two different senators uh, a few years ago, that would result in a 15% cut in pay potentially for forestry technicians. And to make up for that, it would be a minimum of a four and a half percent pay raise, which would be too expensive. So it was a, that's why they're not doing it. Done deal. Don't want to hear about it because we're not going to pay you four and a half percent more and you don't want to lose hazard pay. So then let's make a new box. Let's, I don't care what it is, what we've, I've thrown out there. We've thrown out there is then why not be a professional wildland fire technician? That's clearly defined as a first responder with all the appropriate pay benefits, um, everything that we've just mentioned, comprehensive well-being, peer support, et cetera, et cetera. And then as part of that, because I don't believe you can keep using this workforce to meet suppression objectives, um, management objectives in regards to fuels and potentially timber targets or timber dollars and uh, that sort of nature of work is to create some kind of new deal type of act, which we've coined as a land management workforce resiliency and education act, which would create a public service commitment from, I don't, what we've pushed is two to four years. You promise me you're going to come run chainsaw and use a hand tool for three months of your summer. Here's your college education. Because well, that three months is really six when you actually average it out. Cause you're working, you know, 16 hours a day, typically for majority of that season. Yeah. And who knows if you'd be able to, however that would work. If you rolled those, you know, youngsters or, people that wanted to take part of this type of program. Awesome. And the, the reason that that I started thinking of that is when people were pushing for democratic, um, nomination and you heard Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders talking about student loan forgiveness and this and that. And I, we enter in, to those agreements as an adult or somewhat of an adult. I know we don't think straight and we're probably too young to make those decisions or think that taking a hundred thousand dollars out in loans is a good idea for a philosophy degree, but we need people in all fields doing all things. But I don't think that that sort of thing should be forgiven, but I think hard work should be rewarded. And between allowing 
folks to get an opportunity if they would have never had one before or allow folks that entered into poor student loan agreements that are now sitting jobless, especially right now during a pandemic with the unemployment rate the way it is. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in the woods. So, and I think that it is more than time and apt to push, promote an educated public that's accomplishing something in the woods and getting something from it. Not only the satisfaction and the improvement of work ethic, health and wellness, um, getting people off screens, getting them in the woods. And like I said, 80% of what we deal with anymore has some kind of wildland urban interface aspect. And it's a reactionary process because you get called when the smoke's in the air. Start doing it beforehand and give something back. No, absolutely. And that's the thing though, is like, are we not professionals at this point? Like look at what we're doing here. We're managing emergencies and either filling that, whether it's, you know, the overhead positions that are actually doing the managing or the boots on the ground that are just cut in line, you know, last tool rake, doesn't matter who it is. We're professionals at the end of the day. And I think that's one, one thing that definitely needs to change in our line of work. Well, and I think the public needs to be educated on it. I mean, in all reality, even talking to people here, like we bring new employees on and I give them a rundown on fire product and what it's meant for, how it's used, and then what's what it entails to do it successfully. I mean, I doubt that they're, unless you're related to a wildland firefighter, or you research the heck out of it. I don't think anyone truly understands. Like it's not just swinging a tool into the dirt. I mean, it is being a a student of fire means that you're a student of weather. You're a student of topography. You're a student of seasonality. You're a student of fuel moistures. You're a student of slope aspect personnel management, human resources, like to pull off an operation on a large incident, you've got all of that going on. You have meteorologists that are feeding you information. You have situation unit leaners, operation section chiefs, like, and every single input that goes into the decisions that are made or not made based off of, like I said, the weather, the topography, the timing, um, values at risk. Yeah. Values at risk. Like it's, it's not sending people into the woods and putting a line around a fire. No, it's never that simple. It, is a professional art. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing too. It's like even, even aside from the uh, actual firefighting, like the emergency response kind of thing that we do, the suppression activities that we do, what about prescribed fire even? That's, that's a whole other beast. And that's an equally as important thing as well that the policy proposal also addresses. Fuels management, man. Yep. And I think, you know, there's a bridge. I'm not asking, we're not asking um, for a total separation. I just think that the management side needs to become a clearly defined secondary objective 
for a national fire service below suppression readiness. And yes, prescribed fire. I mean, between pride and not biased again, but between doing a lot of prescribed fire and spending some time on a hotshot crew, like you're not going to learn more about fire than doing those two things. Yeah. And the art of putting fire on the ground intelligently and just the, it's an art. Uh, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And the factors that are in place influencing it again, you know, you're thinking of weather, time of day, position on slope, where you've got folks, what's the hazard, what's the risk, what's the frequency, what are the chances of success? Are they worth, you know, the risk? It, it, it's pretty amazing. No, it's definitely an art. And like, I know a couple of people out there, they're just kind of like those savant types when they come to, when it comes to actually burning. And like you said, man, it's an art. Like I never got into it. Never took a, I would never went down to F what is that? FPTC, PFTC. Yeah. PFTC don't have a firing boss qual, but I was always on the operations side and you, they play hand in hand. You need to know both of those things. And at the end of the day, we are professionals but we're not treated as such. I mean, one thing that really is a disgusting thing. And I, I, I know I'm just shitting on the government right now about this, but people are tired of it. But one thing that really is disgusting is the OWCP thing, man. I know you've had a couple, you shared a couple stories with me about people not using OWCP because it's easier to use your private insurance. Yeah. I mean, I think I can say it. I practice this personally and I recommended it depending on severity, if it was poison oak or the sniffles or something relatively minor, but people needed to go seek medical attention outside of fire camp. My recommendation was to use their own personal insurance because then you didn't have to deal with any of it. And you know, that's paperwork that comes and this is on you seasonal firefighters change your address. But when I, we, you know, you get all their mail <laughs> two months after the season and it's like uh, collections or claims or any number of things. And then you're chasing them down and you're making the phone calls. And it's like, no, honestly, just use your own insurance. Use your own insurance. It's going to be covered right now. You're going to be out of pocket 30 bucks. Whatever your copay is. Yeah, but it's done. Yeah. It's not going to be, uh, you know, and we screw things up. If you leave without that doctor's signature because a PA saw you or you don't double check the statement that the doctor put on the form that doesn't clearly relate the injury or illness to your job activity, then that's going to be almost an automatic no. That is, uh, I mean, automatic denial. Yeah. And the, oh my God, the fights I've gotten into with folks, it's, it's horrible. And that's part of the policy proposal and we don't go into the weeds on it, but there needs to be blanket coverage for any injury or illness that's directly related to your, um, on the line injury or illness cut and, cut and dry. And right now you can't even get that. Even if you know that said injury or illness, whether it's uh, a broken leg, a torn ACL, I've heard worst case scenario, an amputated leg, you know, that, that's got a lifespan, but when they just start saying no, even though the paper trail says, yes, 
a hundred times over. Just say yes. Spend more time looking to say yes than you are to automatically say no and call it a day. It's like going to a red card committee. If a doctor says, puts a signature on it and says that it happened as a result of your job. Okay. John Doe is now covered for life. Game over. Yeah. And that's another thing that we don't have is, you know, some sort of like VA program for wildland firefighters. Cause I know so many people that have been seriously injured and they can't continue to be a primary fire anymore. They lose out on their fire retirement. They lose out on, you know, everything pretty much. Sometimes they even have to leave the service entirely. It's like, we, we aren't taking care of those people at all. Yeah. And I believe that there's a bill right now to protect your firefighter retirement that's on the floor or being discussed. I know that there's um, a jumper that's been pushing that heavily because he's in that position. And yeah, the fact that you could potentially do 18 to 19 years and then have some sort of catastrophic injury that pushes you out of your primary fire position and you potentially lose those benefits is it's not right. No, it's, it isn't right. And that's the thing, man. It's like, I hate making those comparisons to the fire to the military, but those guys and girls that are out there, they have those kind of benefits. And if they're injured in the line of duty, they're taken care of. They have essentially benefits for life. In most cases, is it perfect? No. Is it something? Yeah. It definitely is, but I would like to see maybe something like that. I don't know if that's a little too far out of the weeds, but, or too much to ask for because we're not dodging rounds and mortars, you know, but, uh, it's still a public service. Well, you know, my goal, uh, from a senior firefighter, as soon as I was in any kind of leadership position, uh, my third objective or intent when I met with whomever it was, a squad, a crew, um, was to keep people as comfortable as possible in uncomfortable situations. And at the end of the day, there's very few professions in the United States where that gear that you put on in the morning and that, uh, backpack that you put on in anticipation of wearing home might be the last thing that you put on and you might not come home. Yeah. And I think we owe it as a community, as an agency and the United States public to get behind supporting these folks across the board. Oh, absolutely. It's just, that's another thing too, though, is like once fire season ends, I think that everybody just forgets about it. Like you were saying earlier, man, just it's that education component. People don't know what a wildland firefighter is. Sorry, let me correct myself here. A forestry technician. They don't know what we do. Yeah. Is it a collateral duty of being a, is firefighting a collateral duty of being a forestry technician? Yeah. It's another duty as assigned, right? I think it's a primary duty in your PD. Um, and then you've got the collateral duties underneath it. But right, you're right on. I mean, you're, and again, I don't care what I am. If I'm, if I knew,
if I knew that my family was taken care of and alive or dead and that I brought enough home monetarily, if I brought enough money home in a two week period, I, I was cool with that. But the, the stress of not being able to do either of those things started to weigh on me a lot. And I had to get out. And I think you've seen similar sentiment in uh, at least two other resignation letters that have made the rounds um, and originated in California. Yeah. And these are high level people that have built these things too. There's more people leaving. I had 10 years in as a permanent uh, 18 total. And you've got folks that were sitting on 17 years that are deciding to leave three years away from their 20. Yeah. And I guess I can't say with a hundred percent accuracy if all those 17 years were as a permanent, but they were at the, you know, in, in my mind, and again, I'm biased and that's okay. But hot shotting is the, was the pinnacle for me. And you've got the people that were at the pinnacle of the hotshot world deciding to get out and you've got more and more, you got more people leaving than you do staying. It's almost kind of like a, the summer of revolt. And it's like, I've noticed a lot of tension and it started building probably, I don't know. I want to say around 2010 for me, you just see the frustration building and building and building. And now it's almost palpable. You can cut it with a fucking butter knife if you wanted to. Nowadays, people are getting pissed, man. Yeah. I mean, I started writing letters on my own time in non-pay status to the senators. And I've sent you, you know, I've got one letter that's changed over a decade's time that went to whatever representative or state that I ended up, you know, living in at that time to try to push it internally. And yeah, it's, you can cut it with a knife and people are starting to talk. I mean, and whatever Instagram and Facebook and the World Wide web, AOL. <laughs> Don't date yourself too much there. <laughs> this stuff, I mean, it's at your fingertips and there's people leaving, there's people with voices and there's people that are starting to question more things, whether it's their right to take pictures, whether it's their right to say what they want. Well, that's another dangerous thing too. That's a dangerous game. Like taking it upon yourself to write your Senator a letter, basically a grievance letter saying what's going on. That's a dangerous game because there is a definite fear of reprisal and you're t assuming all of that risk because they can just fucking fire you if they wanted to. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you're ever going to get a straight answer on that. I mean, I know people that have gotten away with it. I know people, or I know of one person that was dismissed from his job for, and it probably wasn't very intelligent the way that the individual went around or the went about it and used social media and position in the organization and how you're looked at. I mean, that means a lot. And are you trying to be, I mean, I'll say this too. Are you trying to be tactful and make positive change through like respectable or respectful discourse? Yeah. Or are you trying, are you pissed and saying stuff that you probably shouldn't say because the effect is 
you are now facing some kind of, it might not even be retribution or reprisal. It might be a legitimate corrective action or termination. And we shouldn't be in, in that environment either. Like people need to be heard and the reality needs to be presented appropriately and people need the opportunity to use their voice to not only educate the public, but educate the agency administrators, the Washington office, whomever that needs to hear it to truly understand what it looks like from the ground, because it doesn't look awesome right now. No, it definitely doesn't. But yeah, man, I mean, that's the whole thing is I've noticed more and more, especially this year uh, alone, I've definitely noticed a lot more dissent going on. And there's a lot of public profiles out there because we used to be the silent professional types. Mm-hmm. We're not so silent anymore. And it's it, it's building and building and building. And I, I think that's a very empowering thing for the rest of the forestry technicians out there. But also it's a very dangerous game. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's time for people outside of the feds to stand up for them and provide a method to appropriately show support and advocate for change. Um, and I think that now more than ever, people need to be to advocate for themselves whether you're a seasonal, a permanent, whether you've spent 15 years in, 17 years in, is to do your damnedest to be part of positive change and not be the loudest voice talking about how screwed up it is. Um, And I'm saying this from a position that left the agency. So take it for what you want, because I'm not in your shoes anymore necessarily, but I can guarantee you I'm pushing for you and I'm advocating as hard as I can um, from a private citizen point of view with people that are inside and outside of the agency to see real change happen. That's yeah. The backbone thing, the not backbone, sorry, grassroots, the grassroots effort. It's, it's kind of incredible to see who's actually behind that thing. And a lot of those people have to remain anonymous, but you'd be surprised of some of the people that are a part of that organization. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I've alluded to it, but those same like-minded people are doing that work internally as well from the Washington office to, I don't even want to name the, I guess, subsets or sub agencies, but People do give a shit within the agency, but as I said before, stuff like grassroots that could provide some outside push to help the internal push and push for a paradigm shift and a new reality that recognizes forestry technicians as professional first responders that are paid and taken care of on par with their counterparts um, that exist within the Western United States and other countries for that matter. There isn't anything more important 
based off of today's environment, today's workforce, and how important the work is needed. It's an environmental emergency, and you're not going to find finer civilian operational leadership anywhere else. And that has to be maintained. It has to be promoted. And there has to be a way to keep those folks showing up because, as my one friend used to say, it used to be really easy to ride for the brand. And that has to be recreated. Well, that's the thing though, man, is like we, we do a good job of preaching loyalty and teaching almost fealty at a, to a degree, but we don't necessarily do a good job of taking care of us. It's almost futile. It wasn't built into the system and we don't know how to do it. I mean, that goes back to me to a 1930s, 40s employment model. I mean, you didn't really expect people to do this job for that long. There might be a few here and there. Yeah. But it's freaks of nature that can do this for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. But I mean, you look even pre 2000 and the mill build up the max maximum efficiency level and the look after the 2000 fire season in Montana and Idaho and that result in more hotshot crews, more permanent employees. I mean, my first forest service supervisors, they spent 15 plus years as seasonals before they even had an opportunity to get a permanent appointment. And that's progress. I mean, look, I said it, you know, at one point in time, the only permanent employee on a hotshot crew was the soup. Everyone else from the assistants to the squad bosses down were also like, get out of here later. Later, nerd. Come back later if you want. Yeah. And you're looking at 50% permanent. I mean, that stuff's been addressed. Maximum efficiency level probably needs to be readdressed. There has been change in body count. Now there has to be change in how we take care of those bodies and keep them. And that's another thing too, is like the recruitment process. We don't, any government agency that's recruiting for fire. It's horrible and confusing. It's horrible and confusing, but not only that, they have shitty PR too. Those jobs are out there and how the hell are we, especially in like region five, would we, I, I, someone's, whoever's listening, correct me on this number, but I believe we had just under 900 vacant spots in R5 alone this year, maybe 800. I know it was some stupid astronomical amount of people that we were basically UTF. We couldn't unable to fill these positions. Oh, just unable to fill 900 positions. Yeah. Yeah. I don't doubt it. I don't know. I asked that. I know that they build in something like that in region six for like a 10%. Um, amount of those positions that they'll won't be able to fill. And that's almost just a common theme in R6, but you look at geographic areas and where people want to live, et cetera. Region six is pretty attractive. Most of the time, I know it's a problem in R3. Um, I mean, there's a superintendent job that's gone unfilled for a couple of years ago. And I know when I was trying to be a hotshot, I don't care who you were is just a crew member. If you would have rang my, um, there was no cell phones back then, but if you would have called me, man, you got me hook, line and sinker. Now, I mean, people turn those jobs down, which is pretty incredible, especially, you know, in lieu of current events, you know, you had the pandemic, which we're also subjecting ourselves to uh, an inherent risk there. It's not classified as high, which I don't understand because 
inevitably someone's going to get sick at fire camp. Uh, they already are. I mean, that article wildfire today, you know, 220 confirmed cases, and this is probably a month old and one death attributed to COVID. And I know they ran the models on it pre-fire season and some of the projections were pushing a mortality rate of 6%. Obviously, I mean, I, I guess I won't speak to any of that, but I mean, if that was a worst case scenario or what, but those were the numbers that were run. Yeah. it's That's the thing though. At the end of the day, we're problem solvers and we've, we figured it out. We figured out how to stay and remain operational even with a pandemic going on. Yep. And part of that is what other choice do you have? You don't because have you have to have overtime and you have to have hazard pay. Well, you can always get a job at Walmart, probably make about the same amount of money and be employed year round. Yeah. And I, you know, there's the year round employment, even it's like, I'm all about it. If you're starting to build in, a structure fire type of work to rest ratio, whether that's 24 on 48 off or whatever the solution is. Kelly or modified Kelly schedule, something like that. Yeah. But just turning the existing workforce into a year round workforce, I think potentially leads to more people leaving than staying because the burnout rate is going to be that much higher. Oh, absolutely. There, I don't, I don't know how you do it. I've got a million different ideas in my head that I won't spout off um, on here. I have rambled and probably talked unintelligently enough, but there's ways, you know, that it can be addressed. But that's the other thing, and I think it's important to discuss. It's like the whole work to rest ratio isn't legit. No, there's no rest in. A two to one, a 16 hour day, eight hours off. You're not, there's no eight hours of rest within that eight hours. You're getting breakfast, eating dinner, performing chores of whatever nature that may be. If you're on a crew member, you're getting lunches, you're getting water, you're going to supply, whatever. Potentially that's on the clock. Potentially it's off because you're over your 16. If you're a crew supervisor, what are you chasing down operations? You're going to situation, you're doing any number of things. You're probably sleeping between, I know El Dorado did that sleep study last year. And on average, I think it was probably between four and five hours a night. Travel's not included in um, your assignment. So any more, I mean, a minimum of 16 days of with drive time, maybe 18 days, maybe 19, maybe 20, depending on where you're at. And then you got two days off of that to where you can, if you were me, and <laughs> this was one of my downfalls, you were trying to put as much booze into your system as possible. Try to be a normal husband and a normal father and probably failing at that miserably, um, that system doesn't work. And then to me, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, the only thing that truly matters is that 14 day assignment. So you can get those two days to not have a cell phone on and not be in a two hour callback that you're not compensated for. 
and those 16 hour days to achieve as much overtime because you're relying on it to get you through your winter. And I firmly believe that whether it's consciously or subconsciously, that decisions and actions are made to reach those two objectives, which is 14 days on assignment and 16 hour days for max overtime. Yeah. I can't look you straight in the eye and say that I haven't done that. Like leading a module or something like that, an engine module. Yeah. I know that I've made my decisions not only selfishly for me, but as for the welfare of my crew as well, to get them the seasonal, the much bang for their buck because they're going back to school in a month or they're, you know, don't have a job lined up in the winter. And I know I've made probably risky decisions based off of that. And I think a lot of people out there have also, but we normalize it. Or we don't even recognize we're doing it because it's just part of the culture. And, uh, you know, I think it happens from type one incident management teams on down. Uh, I'll say it, you know, I think that people are making the best informed decisions to keep their people safe. Don't ever get me wrong on that. Based off of the, the, the conditions that they're given, the objectives they're given, these safest decisions made possible are made. Whether you engage, don't engage, come up with a different plan, whatever that is. But then every effort from being in that position and depending on time of year, 14 days, 16 hour CTRs is a part of my decision-making cycle. That's, that's gotta be reflected across a lot of the community. Yeah. And it was when it hit me, cause I am still allowed and sponsored as an administratively determined firefighter. So I just to be able to do my job worth the shit, I need to keep my boots on the ground, stay relevant, keep contacts, figure out what's working, not working. And it's the only fallback plan. I mean, if I'm maybe after this interview, they wouldn't rehire me, but, um, <laughs> there's a reprisal thing. Well, yeah. You know, I was working with a, a hotshot crew. I was out as a heavy equipment boss working on a chunk of line and we were about to get weathered out and there was rain coming, snow coming. It was August. It was last year, slow fire season. And I was on like day five. And these guys were on four, 13 or 14. They knew that they would get their 14, travel home, get their two days off. Everyone was in high spirits. And I was talking to the soup and a comment he made to me was, oh, don't worry, man, you'll get your hours. And in my head, I'm like, I, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit about my hours. I don't give a shit about how much time I'm on this fire. I'd rather get rained out, snowed out, it was like a Friday. It's like, I'm going to get home. I'm going to hit the weekend. I'm going to see my wife, my daughter. And I know that I'm making a living wage that I can plan on and live off of and support my family with. And I, it was the most gratifying moment of leaving the agency, knowing that I could plan my life, go home. I didn't I don't ever, 
I go on fire because I want to now. It's not a necessity. No. And that, that evolution of a forestry technician life is for me broken. Like I am happier. I am healthier. I'm still a dumbass. <laughs> I still have a tendency to want to do all the things I wanted to do as a 20 year old hotshot, drink too much, you know, hang out with the boys, the the gals, you know, the homies, the fire family and that stuff's still there that I got to work on because I spent 20 years perfecting the art of being a gorilla on a hillside and being a jackass. And I was moderately good at the jackass part and sort of okay at fighting fire. And that's the thing though, is it, it all too often this job becomes your identity mm-hmm. and the two of us sitting in this room is evidence of that alone where you're removed out of fire. You're still loosely tied into it, but man, I'm the same way, dude. I still, I still operate at my day job the way I would as a fire guy. Absolutely. And that's, it's weird. I'm completely fucking useless though, outside of fire. I came to realize that I have no other marketable skills besides fire. Uh, to a certain extent, I would say, I mean, I've never done anything. I started digging trails at 16 years old for a conservation corps and worked in the woods until I was 39. Um, the things that you learn from the forest service, whether it's your standard operating procedures, policy procedure, HR stuff, running budgets, balancing budgets, spending, allocation, uh, pace models, smart objectives, all of those things apply in the private industry and lend your usefulness or the skills and tools that you learn from a career time spent in fire and moving up the chain. In my opinion, like you can come in and see gaps, deficiencies, break it down with leaders, intent, command presence, duty, respect, integrity, character, accountability, all that stuff applies. And then some, in my opinion, from where I was in a hotshot org chart to becoming a fire program manager at mystery ranch. And so I, I have found that, like, I would say you're selling yourself short and anyone that's in the agency that doesn't think they can do anything else is sorely mistaken because you've practiced it, you've preached it, you've done all the things to make yourself a leader of men and women. And that stuff all happens and is needed no matter where you're at. And I think what fire does give you is initiative and the ability to solve problems and to make wherever you're at, hopefully better. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean that, thing that I said, I mean, it's, I have no more skills besides fire. I guess that's a box of bullshit. If you guys, if I, I guess when you put it that way. And I'm just saying, like I said, I, I would say you're selling yourself short because what you're doing 
is opening up a lot of people's eyes and the way that you've diversified the voice you've gained, the audience you're given and the voice that you're giving to other people to speak about the realities is invaluable and you wouldn't have been able to do it in Nomex. Nope. That's one of the major other contributing factors of why I got out of it. Like I said, man, it's like you could do more outside of fire than you more for the firefighters on the ground outside of fire than you can within it. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. That was kind of my um, mystery ranch. You'll hear this in the podcast, but that was certainly my ulterior motive for getting out was to do something differently, expand my brain a different way and have a true platform to be able to start getting this stuff out um, without that fear of, well, what are they going to say when they find out I'm doing this for the feds? Yeah. Well, I mean, you got a, a, a box full of tricks up your sleeve right now, especially with not only the grassroots movement, you've got that going. You also have some other stuff that you could do through Mystery Ranch exclusive. And it's, it's one of those things where we as firefighters support Mystery Ranch by using your guys' gear in the, in, in the field, right? And then you in turn support us by offering things that are coming out like the Backbone series, which is exactly what we're talking about pretty much. Mm-hmm and the 1039 uh, scholarship series as well. So those hard and fast lessons learned in fire translated well to the private sector and it's giving back more to the fire computer, the, the fire community. It's, it's what shaped you and like you're repaying that debt, that life debt, I guess you could say to the, the fire service. And it's not necessarily the agency. It's the people that you served with. Yeah, it's just, and I think we'll get into that in further detail, but yeah, it's a way for me to utilize the position I'm in and how much this company cares about the people that are putting on, uh, you know, whatever it is, a hotshot, a hotshot top load or one of our bags, or it's a way to give back. And it's uh, directly related to my own experience coming up and um, the need to promote the workforce and see that people have an avenue or a path or at least someone that's willing to help a little bit. I mean, I know it's not gonna be a life changer, but, um, it's a way to hopefully see people move forward, whether that's inside or outside of fire. No, it's one hell of a thing to do, man. That's quite the endeavor. But so one question that I did want to ask you though, after we talked about this whole episode, all these topics that we addressed is if you had any, I guess, advice to give to either a younger firefighter, someone who's just fresh in the game or someone who's considering getting into it, what would it be? You know what I push more than anything upon my folks. Um, and you didn't get it back in the day. Not like I'm all that old and salty, but I saw it enough and um, spent enough time as a seasonal, but whether you're a seasonal or a young permanent, spend time and request that you're getting that individual development plan that's laying out those one to three year goals and then those three to five year goals and what those steps entail, what it's going to take of you to accomplish them. And line that shit out on paper and take it seriously 
And when it's time to get your performance appraisal, which I think form and function of those is changing to where you're either going to be successful or unsuccessful, and they're getting rid of the ability to say whether someone's superior, outstanding, or... Um, it's like forced mediocrity. It's weird. Yeah. And I've heard some actual positives to it. Then I don't... I'm obviously not in it, so I don't know. But take your performance appraisals seriously and... We all have weaknesses. The only time I got better is when I was humbled and I was humbled typically when I thought I was good at something. And then I got kicked in the mouth and realized that I had a lot to learn. Um, seek feedback, uh, put yourself in the hot seat. If you don't think you can do something, you don't know till you try. And I can't say enough. You got to have a plan, make a plan might not end up the way that you want, but at least if you have one, you've got direction, you know where to go, you know how to go, how to get there. Um, and ask that of your superiors because they owe it to you. You know, you, I always believe that uh, people weren't working for me. I was working for them. Like I said, my job first and foremost was to meet the intent of whoever my supervisor was, whether that was a superintendent, an assistant soup, a squad boss, uh, whomever it was, you know, that was my intent was, my objective was to meet their intent. Um, and then it was to meet the intent of the interagency hotshot standards. And then my third one, and I'm sorry, but it will, and probably always will remain number three was to keep people as comfortable as possible in uncomfortable situations. That's some good words of advice, man. Well, yeah. And, and, uh, hopefully all these things will be addressed. Like I, I genuinely and truly hope that the grassroots effort does make some headway and does begin to fix some of these systemic issues within our organizations because it's, it's been reflected across a lot of people like the mental health survey that we put out or the OWCP uh, survey that we put out. It's, it sucks, man. It's, it's kind of dismal, but there's always opportunity to improve and I hope that it does. And don't get me wrong. Like this is night. This whole point of this episode is not to shit on the government for treating us like crap. I loved my job. I had some of the best times of my life and I wouldn't have changed a fucking thing for the world for that, for those experiences and those friendships and those, all those things that I learned. Right. But I, I do want to see it improve for the boots on the ground for future generations. Yeah. The most gratifying thing that I've ever done and will ever do in my life was be a United States Forest Service employee um, as an initial attack resource. And then as a hotshot, like I said before, I don't think I'm certainly not shitting on any agency. But what I think in the end that we're asking for is not to only support and see change for boots on the ground, but provide the momentum and a vehicle to see the people in the agency that are trying to do this internally, give them the push, the funding and the blueprint for what that looks like. Yeah. Well, hopefully it uh, happens. Yeah. I mean, it's a marathon. Yeah. And it takes an army. That's for sure. So, yeah. but yeah, I mean, that's why organizations like grassroots exist. So reach out to that page and, uh, soon to be website, soon to be merch, soon to be political advocacy, soon to be a lot of things. So, uh, yeah, formulate that army and 
divide and conquer. Yep. And I just as a disclaimer, because, you know, everything from my involvement with grassroots to um, any kind of employee advocacy, that stuff is that that stuff's on me. Um, It's got nothing to do with uh, my place of employment or work. It's uh, outside of my family is like we said, fire family and those folks have shaped my life. I love them and, uh, I'll do everything I can to push for what I feel is right for, uh, the people that are booting up every morning. Oh yeah, man. Well, takes time, takes a lot of energy, especially a lot of energy off the clock, you know, cause you can't do it here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shit, man. I mean, coming to the end of the episode and this one will be continued. We're going to go into the second part of this episode and, uh, it's going to go into deep deep detail about the backbone series in 1039. So yeah, that'll be the next one. But other than that, where can we get a hold of you for questions, man? Man, honestly, if you if anyone needs anything from me at any time, I don't care what it is. I am still helping people with resumes, IDPs, job outreaches. I will do anything and everything. And you can find me at L U C A S at mysteryranchusa.com or call my cell phone 971-832-0212. I'm on social media, but I don't know what any of the profiles are. Instagram, I'm a goofy looking dude with an orange hard hat uh, <laughs> or Facebook. Yeah. Also reach out to grassroots as well. For sure. Then, uh, yeah, I'll definitely put all the, uh, all the pertinent information in the show notes. That way you guys can pull it up as well. But uh, yeah, Lucas, thank you so much for being on the show, man. And last but not least, at the end of the show, I'd love to give uh, you the opportunity to give a shout out to a homie, a hero, mentor. Who do you got for us? I've got a lot. Um, if I get another opportunity, maybe I'll get more in depth. But due to uh, current events and just everything that's gone on, you know, I'll definitely give a shout out to, uh, you know, I'm my thoughts and everything are with you, but the big bear hotshots and, and, uh, Charlie Morton's family. Um, my thoughts are with you and the folks that have started to speak out, whether it's, uh, with resignation letters or non, but Aaron Humphrey, um, the old El Dorado hotshot superintendent, Mike West, uh, Kevin, uh, Meacham. I'm sorry if I just, butchered your last name. I've never met you, but, uh, your letter was inspiring. And, uh, the folks that came up with that transitional resolution from R5, uh, I give a shout out to you folks for, uh, uh, making change. Hell yeah, man. And yeah, shout out to Charlie's family, man. I, uh, it's, it's words can't describe that. I can't imagine what you guys are going through. And uh, yeah, Charlie, rest in peace. Right on, guys. I hope you uh, enjoyed the episode. And Lucas, thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Right on, dude. Catch you on the next one.
All right, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with my good friend, Lucas Mayfield. Luke, thank you so much for coming on the show for part one of two. And yeah, dude, that's a hell of a story. And I don't blame you for getting out of fire. And I'm super appreciative of the fact that you've taken your fire knowledge and all your experience in the field and translated it into something bigger and better. It's kind of crazy, man. You got the grassroots movement going. You got the backbone series going. You got the 1039 scholarship series coming up and you're the fire program manager for mystery ranch. That's pretty incredible. And, uh, yeah, we'll be, uh, looking forward to hearing the rest of what you have to say, man. Anyways, with that being said, I just want to give a special shout out to mystery ranch. Uh, they are the chief supporter of this whole endeavor. And I deeply appreciate you guys inviting me up there to Bozeman, Montana and hanging out with you guys over there and doing some fun stuff. I definitely appreciate it. And just want to express my gratitude and say, thank you. As for the rest of our sponsors, we got the smoky generation, Bethany, you got a kick-ass organization. Keep doing what you're doing. We got Manscaped. They make the best manscaping tools of the trade out there, hands down. Go check them out and get 20% off using code AnchorPoint at checkout site-wide. We got the Ass Movement. They are spreading the word of burying your turds. So go over there and pick up one of your turd trowels over at thefirewild.com and help support the cause. We got Hotshot Brewery, purveyors of the finest coffee on this coast and kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause keep it up and last but not least we've got the wildland firefighter foundation they are not a supporter of the show and i just love their organization and so i'm going to give a shout out to old burke and vicky over there keep doing what you guys are doing as for the rest of you you know the drill stay safe stay savage peace we'll see you on the next one